0: Good morning. good morning. Merry post-Christmas, Merry pre-New uh, Year's. We're sort of in the Oreo of holidays today. Uh, good morning to you all. It's a joy to be here with you. Today we're going to finish our Advent series that we've been going through looking at the kingship of Christ and our response to that king. And we're going to be looking at Matthew 2, verses 7 through 21. In the passage today we have two kings with two vastly different kingdoms very two distinct kingdoms with various responses to both kings we have the kingdom of the serpent which is the city of man and the world these are filled this is filled with caesars with pharaohs with lovers of darkness then we have the kingdom of god with jesus as our true king the son of light and his followers of light the followers of righteousness since this is a larger passage uh, 7 through 21 we're going to be doing more of a quick overview, a brief overview, as we finish out our Advent narrative. But there's two main points for us today. The first point is, what does the kingdom of the serpent look like? And what is its response to Jesus, the true king? How does it react? Secondly, what does the kingdom of God look like? And what is its response to Jesus as the true king? How, do, how does the kingdom of God react to Jesus? According to St. Augustine, the distinction between the two kingdoms or the cities, the city of God and the city of man, is grounded in two distinct loves, the love of God and the love of self. You see, the former leads to genuine fellowship and a communion of mutual giving and receiving, while the latter engenders strife, war, and the desire to exercise domination over others. So with that framework, we're going to read Matthew 2, 7 They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child. To destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was the prophet spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are now dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. Fifty years ago, Yes, 50 years ago, on December 21st, 1970, it's hard to believe, two unlikely kings met for the very first time in a very rather unlikely manner in the first place. The first king was loved by many all around the world, and he had fabulous hair, wonderful hair. The second king was liked, but his hair left much to be desired. That's the two kings. Even kings, when they meet together, they don't just simply meet. There's a uh, protocol, if you will. There's, there's things that have to be done in order for kings to meet. So the first king didn't stop him, really, so whatsoever. He wrote a handwritten note, and he just simply went up to the front gates of the palace, handed it to the guards, and said, I'd like to meet the king. Here's where I'll be staying. If you'd like to come find me, this is where I'll be at. Well, the, the king was a little perplexed by this. Uh, Certainly he had no clue that the king was coming, and and you see the king had a lot of older people in his kingdom, and they were not huge admirers of the king with great hair. You see, the the other king, the king with great hair, had younger commoners who worshipped him in an almost sort of uh, godlike fashion at times. He was their king. The king who lived in the palace decided, however, to take the risk. He would meet with the king who had great hair. Both kings met the next day. The visiting king explained why he was there. He said, I want to encourage young people to stay away from drugs and I want us to work together. The two agreed this was an arduous task. It was a group effort. They needed each other to work together and they both talked about this for quite some time. About halfway through, the visiting king said, let's not publicize this. Let's just work behind the shadows. Know I'm there for you. You're there for me. Let's not put it out. I don't know how my younger devotees we'll we'll take it that we're seen together. Let's just not let it be put out. Both kings agreed to this. They shook hands, they took pictures, and the king with great hair, the one known as the king, Elvis Presley, had soon left the building. The other king known as President Nixon, the one that didn't have great hair, he was simply happy that the meeting was finally over. Despite the historical nature of this meeting, news of the event did not leak until a year later. And the photo of these two unlikely kings shaking hands is to this day the most requested image from the National Archives. Who would have thought? Well, what we have before us today in this text is a very unlikely meeting of kings. It's two different kingdoms, two different kings, two different sets of followers, and here they are in the unlikeliest of places, Jerusalem. And both are here, And we don't know what's going to happen. What what will take place at this meeting? The news has been sent. Herod knows that that the king has been born. Will they receive him with joy? Will they work together? Well, if you know the story, it's a spoiler here. They want Jesus dead. Before we get too deep in the text, we need to look back at how these two kingdoms began. You see, the, the lovers of light and the children of darkness have always fought. Since the beginning of time, there's always been... Two kingdoms. Back in Genesis three fifteen, Adam and Eve have just disobeyed in the garden. They've, the fall of man has occurred, and God shows up and He makes a promise to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And the promise is that the woman's seed and the serpent's seed would be at enmity with one another. They would always fight. But there was a promised seed that would come, the king, the true king, who would step on the head of the serpent, crushing him forever. Satan, knowing that God always keeps his promises, now plots and waits. So Eve gives birth to two boys, Cain and Abel. Is, this, is one of these going to be the, the heel crusher, the head crusher? Two different seeds from the same womb. The seed of the woman, Abel, is killed by his brother Cain. This is not going so well. But Abel is not the promised heel crusher, and neither was Seth, who came later. Then we come to a man named Abraham, who God promises to make into a great nation. Now, the problem with Abraham is he's not even a Yahweh follower. He's worshiping other gods when God calls him out of Ur. And he calls him out and he says, I'm going to make you a great people. The second problem is, him and his wife are too old to even have children. A great nation. When God tells them this, they laugh. Him and Sarah laugh at God. So they wait. And it's not happening soon enough. It's not happening fast enough. So they decide to go around God. They want to circumvent God's plans. And they bring forth Hagar, the concubine, the maidservant of Sarah. Is this going to be the seed, the child? Eh. Wrong seed. Not Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. It will come through Sarah. This will bring forth God's chosen nation. Well, Isaac goes on to have twins. And again, we come to the question, which one is the seed? Obviously. Obviously it has to be the older one, the, the handsome one, the hairy one, the, the man's man. It has to be Esau. Eh? Wrong again. God's kingdom is not about birth order. It's about election. The older shall serve the younger. Jacob's line is going to produce the seed. And then we come to Jacob and Jacob meets Laban, Laban, the crafty character in our story, and he has two daughters. And one is, Yauza, Yauza, yeah, right? Rachel. That's the one Woo! he is in love with Rachel. Leah, okay, Leah's over here. But Rachel, I'm going to work seven years for Rachel. Well, Laban bamboozles him. He wakes up after his marriage day and who's in bed with him but Leah. All right, I have to work seven more years, seven more years for Rachel, who I love. This is not a Hallmark original classic. This is a God-ordained election story. And so Rachel, who is loved, who is the favored one, seven more years he works, he gets Rachel, and Rachel cannot have children. Not until much later in the story when God performs another miracle, and Rachel finally gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin. And we think, this is it. The prom- this is the girl he loves. This is the one, the hallmark of it. is going to happen. But it's, it's not Joseph or Benjamin. That's, they're not. Neither of them are the promised one to carry on the line, because it's not a cliche novel. It's God's story of redemption, and we come in Genesis 37. We're introduced to Joseph, and we think this is our guy. All the brothers hate him. The next, ne- all the chapters after this are going to be about Joseph. And then Genesis 38 interrupts our story. It's like a, eh, you know, a, a scratching, and we go, what? Who, Judah and Tamar? What's this story about? No, no, no. Let's get back to Joseph. He's our. He's our guy. But you see, that's because Judah is the promised heir. He is going to carry on the godly line. And in chapter 38, we see probably the most shameful moment of Judah's life with Tamar. But God's going to redeem Judah. Judah steps up. He says to his father, Jacob, later on when Benjamin is, is there, the youngest son, Benjamin, is going to be taken. And he says, send me with the boy, Benjamin. I know you love him. If anything happens to him, I will be his Substitute. And so out of Judah's shameful act with Tamar, they have Perez, a little boy named Perez. And if you follow his family line, he, you know that he eventually is the great, 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 great grandson. He has the great grandson, a little guy named David. Maybe you've heard of him. And this great King David would go out before the giant Philistine Goliath. And he would, too, be a representative substitute for God's elect people. He would slay the enemy of God. And this great King David, descendant of Judah, eventually has a greater son who is a greater king, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Our King Jesus. This Jesus who, like his forebears, would stand as a substitute on behalf of God's people. Who would crush the head of the serpent conquer the power of sin and death drink full the cup of god's wrath in our place as our substitute on the cross the promised seed had finally come that's what christmas is all about this is the jesus who the old testament whispers and shadows it was all about him finally he had arrived you see the beauty of the kingdom of god is that it's always been balanced on a razor's edge The kingdom of God has always been faced with impossible odds. But only because God elected him. It was a story of redemption that we would be his people. Now we find ourselves in the text today. So we have to have that set up in order to appreciate where we are today. When we last left the so-called Herod the Great He was meeting the wise men. They had come from the east. They wanted to worship Jesus. You can imagine his face. Oh, you want to meet the king of the Jews? Here he is. No, 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 no. The real king of the Jews. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, they informed the king. He calls in the scribes and the Pharisees. And they go, hey, ask him about some king of the Jews here. Uh, What's this about? And they say, oh, Micah 5, 2. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. We know about that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, they tell them. And this is great news for the wise men. Fantastic. We have a location now. And it's horrible news for the king and for Jerusalem. It says they're troubled by this news. Well, it doesn't take Herod long to come up with a solution to his problem. The MO for the kingdom of the serpent has always been the same. It's lie, deceive, and murder. Lie, deceive, and murder. So he asked the wise men some more questions. Okay, so when did you all see the star? Okay, all right, write this down. Somebody write this down here. Okay, perfect. All right, now go to Bethlehem. Come right back because, believe it or not, I want to go worship him too. (laughs) All right, come on. You guys go on your way, right? Lies, deception, eventually murder. Which leads us to our first point. What does the kingdom of the serpent look like? And what is its response to Jesus, the true king? Well, the first thing that the kingdom does is it always seeks to lie, to deceive, to distort the truth and unrighteousness. It always takes God's truth and it wants to warp it in some way. Jesus in Matthew 24, 24, he talks about this demonic operation. He says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they'll perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You see Satan swinging for the fences. Satan elsewhere is called the father of lies. And here we see Herod doing the exact same thing his father does. He's lying, he's deceiving, he's trying to, to get information out of the wise men and fool them. But God preserves his people, and he dupes Herod. Herod's quagmire for them is, is in disarray. Paul reiterates Jesus' words again in 2 Corinthians eleven, thirteen through 15. Paul says this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of light of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself describes, dis- disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness Their end will correspond to their deeds. I want to go worship him too. That's it. I want to go worship him too. So come on back. Tell me where he's at. Well, the wise men are warned. They're called wise men for a reason. And they take an alternate path. They do not go back to Herod. In much the same way, God often provides a way out for his people in order to avoid temptation. Joseph and Mary are similarly warned in a dream. And they flee to Egypt, which is a fitting place for the greater Moses. To return it's a prophetic fulfillment for the true israel to be called out once more out of egypt god has called his son if you think of egypt for us as believers here in 2020 almost 2021 it's a very fitting analogy it's a very fitting example for what the kingdom of man can look like for us so many of us have vacationed in egypt for a time enjoyed its pleasures And we had to be called out. Eventually, all of God's elect, by God's grace, will be, have been called out of slavery, out of addiction, out of bondage under Pharaoh. He calls us into the wilderness of this world to be led by God. Again, this is why Jesus had to come. He had to lead the second exodus out of Egypt for God's people. This time he had to lead us out of spiritual slavery and bondage to Satan and sin and death. The prophet like Moses had finally come to deliver his people. Now, I want you to imagine, if you will, you are Herod at this point and you are panicked because you've waited a day. You've waited a couple days, maybe a week, and there are no wise men coming back. How dare you trick a trickster? How dare you dupe the duper? Don't don't they know I'm Herod the great? Did they not get that great part? You see, he's paranoid. He's a paranoid individual. He's always worried about who's going to take his throne and what's going to happen. And he's, he's living in darkness, so he's just scared out of his mind. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or older, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Which leads us to the 2nd The second here. The kingdom... This kingdom and its king does, its, does is it rages against Christ and his followers. This kingdom and its king rages against Christ and his followers. This is Psalm 2, 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So why do the nations rage? Because they're imposters. They're imposter kings. If you, if you watch Elf over the holidays, they, it's like Buddy the Elf says, they sit on thrones of lies. They're, they're faux kings. Only Christ is the true king. So when he shows up, rather than worship him, they want to kill him. They want him off their throne. That's my throne. How dare he take our throne? This is why Herod figures, I'll just take, so my lying didn't work. My deceit didn't work. I'll go to my classic, which is murder. I'll just kill a small number. Just a small number of kids in Bethlehem's surrounding area. I'll just rid myself of this future king. It's a dark passage. In the advent narrative many historians come to this event and they go well we can't find this event in history that bible is making up stuff again it's not true this didn't happen then And, and i and i labored over this and i and i thought well that's interesting it's not recorded elsewhere in history the classic jewish writer josephus he does mention that during this time herod had three of his own sons murdered out of fear that one day they might usurp his rule And so I thought, no, actually, it makes perfect sense. The most likely explanation to me is that the number of boys, two years and under, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, it's a very specific thing. It simply wasn't significant enough to be recorded. And the killing of Care the Great's own boys would have been a bigger story than some podunk town, Bethlehem. Little boys being killed, doesn't make headlines. And if you marvel at this, that young children could be slaughtered without anyone recording it for the history books, then just look at the millions of babies that are murdered each year. They're nameless, forgotten, just numbers. And the blood of these little boys in Bethlehem, the slaughter of these innocents, cried out for justice. And the blood of the millions of unborn cry out as well. But we know from the history books And from the Bible, that justice came swiftly for Herod. I'm not going to tell you how, but it was gruesome, it was embarrassing, and it was timely. And soon enough, Jesus, still a child, is able to return to Nazareth with his parents. And I pray that justice would come swiftly as well. For all of the unborn lives that we have a lot of ambivalence towards in our own day and age. Finally, what we find here in the text is really three responses to Christ's coming. The first response is worship. The wise men come and they worship. That's their response to the king. The second response is fear and murder. It's hatred from Herod. He's scared. He's he's paranoid. He does not like Jesus. And the third response is simply apathy. If you jump backwards in the text, I think it's verse 4 or 5, there's an interesting point of silence. Herod has called in his scribes. He's called in his Pharisees. And he says, where's the king to be born? They go, oh, that's easy. Oh, we read our Bibles all the time. Micah 5 two, Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born. And, and in the text, it doesn't say, and you know, Joe got up and he said, I'm going to go follow the wise men. And all the scribes, they secretly snuck out because they wanted to go meet their king. It doesn't say that says they're they're troubled right along with Herod. They don't go, they don't care. They know their Bibles backwards and forwards and they just don't care. And the warning for all of us here today is to not be in this third camp because this is actually the deadliest response for those who are in the church. These are to whom Jesus will say one day, be gone, I never knew you. And you'll say, what? I knew the Bible backwards and forwards. Did you not see what I did, Jesus? He'll say, I never knew you. These are the scribes and Pharisees of our day, the whitewashed tombs, those who follow what is called a moralistic therapeutic deism. They are Satan's favorite type of churchgoers because they he wants them to remain on their own thrones. These are the type of people who are, you know, your truth is your truth and I don't want to offend anybody. And this is, you know, well, the, did Jonah really happen? Is that in the Bible? And they're, they're always the marginal. They're always on the fringe. You know, if you ask them, what is justification by faith alone? They would say I could tell you about angel hierarchy, you know, or or end time stuff. They're always on the fringe. They're just apathetic. The preacher, Donald Barnhouse, he paints an interesting picture of how Satan fosters this type of response in the church. He says, what would it actually look like if Satan took over a city? There would be white picket fences. All the yards would be very clean. There would be no gum on the sidewalks. The children would all say, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. Their hair would be all trimmed, all the bars would be closed, there would be no foul language. And everyone would go to church twice every Sunday where Christ is not preached. You see, Satan loves lukewarm spirituality. He loves Moralistic therapeutic deism. He likes people to be on their thrones. He likes people to be winning their own righteousness, getting their own way to heaven, as long as you do not look to Christ for your salvation. They're neither hot nor they're cold. So, the warning to all of us then is to not remain neutral and not to pretend like we can remain neutral. There's only two responses there's only one way, one mediator, one path, one Lord, one King. Either we get off our thrones or we're going to be removed by force. Which leads us to our final point. What does the kingdom of God look like? What is is our response? Us who have abandoned our thrones, who have cast down our crowns at the king's feet. What is our response to Jesus' coming? Well, the first question is, what is a kingdom at all? What is the kingdom of God? I asked my my five-year-old son, I said, Thad, what is a kingdom? And he said, it's a place where a king is at. (laughs) I said, that's great. That is it. The, A kingdom is wherever the king rules. That's his kingdom. And we know from the, from the Bible that the entire earth is God's kingdom. And what many call their mother earth is what we call Jesus' footstool. Scripture narrows this down a bit, though, specifically focusing on Jesus' messianic kingdom. It's, it's God's elect people are his kingdom. This is why Jesus can say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world Because he's talking about a specific kind of kingdom. This is both a spiritual kingdom that takes place in our hearts and one that is going to break through into this fallen, dark world. It's the kingdom of light. And so when Jesus comes, he inaugurates God's kingdom on earth. He doesn't consummate it, but he starts it. And when he ascends into heaven, he went there for his coronation as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the Bible says now he sits down. He sits down on the throne. The great church father, Athanasius, he put it this way. It's absolutely beautiful. He said, you know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses. Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored. And enemies and robbers, they cease to molest it. Even so it is with the king of all. He has come into our country, dwelt in one body amidst the many, and in consequence, the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled, and the corruption of death, which formerly held them in its power, has simply ceased to be. For the human race would have perished utterly had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come amongst us to put an end to death. Our king has come. So now as followers of Christ the King, what is our response to his coming? Obviously, the first response is, is worship. The wise men come, and the Bible says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They, they were active adorers. They were excited. These, these wise men were giddy. And they come and they give their talents, their time, their treasures. They give these presents to the King. And we're not told what happens to the wise men. It just says they return by a different way, an alternate path. They return back home. But I can only imagine they shared shared this story. That they were missionaries to their own land about the king who was born. Which leads us to our second response. This is the Great Commission. After we worship, we want to tell others... About the king. We want everybody inside. Come inside the doors. We want you at the at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We want you here. We want our friends, our family, we want enemies here. We want everybody inside the kingdom. Come in. Come in. Hear the good news of Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we do this, we we do it as the body of Christ. We lift one another up as brothers and sisters. We work together in unity. The great missionary William Carey, he blazed the trail to India in 1792 and he saw his mission as a miner penetrating deep into a dark mine shaft. He said to John Ryland and his other pastor friends, he said, I will go down if you will but hold the rope. And John Ryland reports, he took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. So First Presbyterian Church, beloved by God, will you all commit to holding each other's ropes? It's much easier to go down into the dark. It's much easier to go into the pit if I know a trusted brother or sister is holding the rope. is praying for me, is with me. And I pray that in 2021, God would give us a fire and a passion for missions, for evangelism, for going forward together. There's so much more I could say. My final point is this. We worship, we spread the gospel, we further the kingdom, and then we take assurance that God is for us. We have assurance that God loves us, that Christ died for our sins. You see, Satan, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar, Herod, the religious leaders, all of these imposters tried to stop the kingdom of God. All throughout the Old Testament, we see it. These people rise up. They cannot stop God's kingdom from spreading. The Bible says since Christ has been raised from the dead, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. And all of us who have been buried with Christ will one day be raised with him as well. His kingdom is eternal. His throne is secure. And if you've been seized and taken captive for Christ, I want you to hear today that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life with permanent ink. If you are buried with Christ Jesus, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. I started, I started with the king. I'm going to end with Elvis, the king of rock and roll. He was a seeker, much like the wise men. But he was a man who often tried to live in both kingdoms. He was baptized three times. He knew his Bible. He could quote scripture better than some of us but he also knew the book of mormon like the back of his hand and he was very obsessed with eastern religions and all sorts of stuff he was a seeker the gospel singer jd sumner recalls a woman once approaching the stage in vegas she came up to the stage and she had a little pillow and on the pillow was a crown and she looked up at up the king and elvis says what's that and she said it's a crown because you're the king and she said he said no honey i'm not the king Christ is the king. I'm just a singer. You can imagine the picture. If you ever listened to any of his gospel records, I remember I was 12 or 13, and I saw, I just happened to stay up late, and I watched him singing gospel late at night on television, and I just wept. And I didn't know why I was crying, but it was this ache that was coming through his voice. It was a longing for something. He was seeking after God. God. Unfortunately, if you know the story of Elvis, you know the man who wanted to team up with Nixon ended up being a drug addict himself. Prescription drugs. In one year, his doctor prescribed him 10,000 prescription drugs. He was obese. He was divorced. He was a shell of his former self. His last words were to his girlfriend, Ginger Alden, who told him as he got up to go to the bathroom and take more pills, she said, Do not fall asleep in there. He replied, "Okay, I won't. She found him later that night dead on the floor. You see, Elvis, Nixon, these great kings of men, all these nations, everybody, celebrities, CEOs, we all fall asleep. But those who are in Christ will rise up to eternal glory. And the terrifying thing is that those who are not in Christ, who refuse to give up their thrones on this earth, They will rise to eternal judgment. If you're a seeker like Elvis today, then I pray you find Christ this minute. If you find yourself apathetic like the Jewish leaders, stop riding the fence and taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you are like Herod and you're scared to death of Jesus, you're fearful of his reign, you are an enemy of God, you want nothing to do with him, then give up your throne. You need to flee from the city of destruction because that kingdom and that king have an expiration date. You see, Christ rules world without end. The true king has left the building, but he's coming back soon.